Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Tavirat Talk. I'm Melissa Studdard and this is the Blog Talk Radio show for Tavirat, a journal of spiritual literature, where we publish writings and engage in dialogue to promote peace in the individual and in the world. We're thrilled that you're with us right now, and we would love for you to also join our global online community. You can find it at www.teferitjournal.com. There, in addition to interacting with other members, reading their writings, and posting your own, you can subscribe to the journal, which in each issue presents beautiful, spiritually and intellectually compelling poetry, prose, and art. This evening's guest is fabulous poet, acclaimed literary critic, professor, editor, best-selling translator, and three-time United States Poet Laureate, Robert Pinsky. Tonight we'll be discussing Pinsky's newly released anthology, Singing School, a joyous collection that proposes that attention to great poetry is the best path to fresher, more pleasurable writing and reading. According to scholar and poet Alicia Ostriker, Singing School is nothing like the usual anthology of safe and sane selections. Instead, it is a gathering of poetry designed to stimulate the young and startle the old practitioner with a surprise around every corner. He has received numerous awards for his poetry and translations, including the Lenore Marshall Award, the Ambassador Book Award of the Speaking Union, the Penn Volcker Award, the William Carlos Williams Prize, and the Theodore M. Ruski Poetry Award. He currently teaches in the graduate writing program at Boston University and serves as a poetry editor for Slate. Hello, Robert. Welcome. Hi, Melissa. I'm so delighted to have you here on this happy occasion, the release of Singing School. <laughs> well, it's a pleasure for um, me, and I I am proud of this book. It's uh, uh, it's an attempt to make in a very short, small book uh, pretty much what I think I know about the art of poetry. Oh, thank you. You know, I love it. It's such a joyous work, and um, I love how it it celebrates the music and delight in poetry rather than rendering it arcane with over-intellectualization. That's no small feat. Uh, I wanted to see if you could tell us how you conceived of the book and how you made your selections for which poems to include. Well, you know, every, every summer in July for a week, uh, the Favorite Poem Project, which I started, and the Boston University School of Education does a workshop for K-12 through teachers. And the teachers are quite wonderful. We have about 50 of them every year. We've been doing it for 10 or 12 years. And we give them copies of the Favorite Poem Project videos where you see the construction worker who reads a Walt Whitman poem and talks about it. The Cambodian immigrant reads a Langston Hughes poem, relates it to her family. And uh, the teachers seem to, they come up with wonderful ideas. My friends, my poet friends and I, Louise Glick, Carl Phillips, uh, Maggie Dietz and I were the faculty last time around. We just mm. talk about poems. The teachers talk about teaching. And the mm. principle we've arrived at is 
that, of course, intelligence is very, very important, and analysis is important. All of those things uh, are to be revered, but you don't begin with them. You begin with mm. an experience. Um, as I always say, you will analyze and interpret your friends and your family all your mm-hmm. life. Even after they die, you will be saying, what did that mean? What was that about? <laughs> it's not how you became attached to them. Mm-hmm. And uh, very often I will meet uh, aspiring poets, sometimes very young, and they will say, what should I do? What should I read? Where's a book that can help me? And for years I've been saying, you have to find things you love and study them hard. And I Mm -hmm. can't tell you exactly what they will be. I can give you hints, and you can get hints from other teachers and uh, writers, but you have to work hard at finding models you love, the way a filmmaker knows what films she loves, the way a musician knows what music they love. And that's why this book. I know. You know, one of the things I love about it is that it's, clearly not meant to be a canon, but it's really a model for readers to find the works they love and build their own anthologies, correct? I'm very skeptical of the idea of a canon. It changes every five or ten years. It changes for each person. And what a mm-hmm. given person thinks about uh, Lord Byron or Edward <laughs> Allan Poe or E. Cummings, it'll vary from expert to expert a lot. There's mm-hmm. not a canon but there's a phenomenon of great art though everybody sees it differently. I say in the introduction to the book, if the book succeeds, each reader will replace it. Uh, I encourage each reader to start a computer file called Anthology and type into it all the poems that you love. Uh, As I say, this book is an example, uh, contains examples of examples. These are my examples, and I hope that readers will like them but I hope it will inspire people to make their own examples, find their own singing school. Mm-hmm. You know, I really I like the way you've organized it. Too. When you were talking about that, I was kind of thinking about how someone might organize their own anthology. And I love the section titles that you have. They're just, um, they really defy staleness and staid convention. And I think my favorite one is the last one, Dreaming Things Up. <laughs> Would <laughs> yes. you tell our listeners <laughs> about these four sections and how you organize the book? Well, again, I was thinking about young poets. I was thinking about myself when I was starting out. And uh, to have the first section called Freedom and to say what freedom is for an artist, freedom can be kind of... Uh, scary for an artist. You really can do what you want. Um, and you have to decide what you want. Uh, and I take uh, take my examples of poems that seem to me great and uh, don't seem to go according to a recipe or rules. I mean, that anonymous poem, there was a man of double deed who sowed his garden full of seed when the seed began to grow. It was like a garden full of snow. As much as the Frank O'Hara poem I adduce, um, you do what you want. It's freedom. And uh, I I love having Michelangelo's very beautiful 
sonnet Michelangelo. A lot of people don't know that Michelangelo was a serious, very good poet. And uh, Gail Mazur's wonderful translation of his poem about painting the Sistine Chapel ceiling. And I hope it'll be very helpful for young poets to see that Michelangelo felt quite free to complain and say he didn't think he was any good. Your <laughs> last words in English are, I'm not a painter, and how tortured it is, and the paint keeps dripping on his face, and his ass hurts. And <laughs> <laughs> so that freedom is not just having a kind of a goofy look in your eyes and prancing about wherever you want. Uh, you're free to say there was a man of double deed who sowed his garden full of seed. Or to begin your poem about painting the Sistine Chapel with, I've already grown a goiter from this torture. <laughs> <laughs> I had never read the poem before. It was quite liberating. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> yeah. I was he says, my painting is dead. <laughs> it's, it's a glorious piece of, you'll pardon the expression, it's a glorious artistic poetic fetch. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Of course, Michelangelo um, could afford to fetch and say he wasn't any good because he also <laughs> had a suspicion that he was Michelangelo. <laughs> and he was right. <laughs> yes, he was. Oh, that's great. Well, um, I also, for your discussion of this 15-word meditation on time by Walter Savage Landor, and I wanted to see if you... Yeah, I don't know if you have the book in front of you or if you can speak it by memory. But oh, I, I can speak that poem by I think almost anybody can get that poem by memory after hearing it once or twice. Uh, it is Lander's poem. Um, I guess it helps to know that Lethe is the water of forgetfulness. Lethe in the classical mythology is the, is the river of forgetting. And Lander's poem is two lines long, and it's one of my favorite demonstrations of how physical poetry is, as well as intellectual. The poem is this. On love, on grief, on every human thing, time sprinkles Lethe's water with his wing. Mm, beautiful. I'll say, it, I'll say it again, and then I'll talk about it a bit, Melissa. On love, okay. on grief, on every human thing, time sprinkles Lethe's water with his wing. As I say in the book, after you've read the poem a few times, you might notice that three times at the beginning, you put your upper teeth on your lower lip when you say, on love, on grief, on every. And three times at the end, you purse your lips. Time sprinkles Lethe's water with his wing. And I don't think that's it. I'd be very surprised to learn that that was anything Landor thought about when he wrote the poem. Mm. But he'd been writing a long time. He was very, very good at it. He understood consonants and vowels very well. And by noticing that the poem does that, and that's part of why the poem is so penetrating and memorable, um, one can learn a little bit about writing as well as reading, in my opinion. Um, and that, to me, is part of the work of art 
as much as the originality of taking one of the great cliches, time flies, time has wings, <laughs> and knowing time, uh, wings don't only propel, they also sprinkle. Mm. Time sprinkles these water with his wing. And for, for young maniacs who want to learn about poetry, thinking about consonants on that practical a level, and thinking about things like wings that precisely should be inspiring. Mm, absolutely. Um, and it's just delicious to hear you read it and explain <laughs> the sound. I wonder, I know you've already said it, spoken it twice, but now that people have heard it and heard what you've had to say about the way the sounds interact and, and the, what the mouth does when it's reading, would you do it one more time so that if anybody wants to do it along with you, they can? Here is the, here's the poem, and it, I think, demonstrates why I call the book Singing School, title taken from Yeats. This is a little bit of singing school in session. On love, on grief, on every human thing, time sprinkles Lethe's water with his wing. Oh, I just love that. Thank you. <laughs> um, okay, so to ask you also, I saw earlier that each Wednesday this month you'll be introducing and discussing with readers who log in a different poem from Singing School at the Poetry Foundation's Harriet and Facebook page, um, and that is just such a fabulous idea. Today was the first day, was it not? Yeah, and there were some wonderful comments on Stevie Smith's poem, uh, Thoughts About the Person from Porlock, and... Um, it, I was very happy to find that I was finding new ways to think about that poem and about the poem by Samuel Taylor Coleridge that she's laughing at in a very affectionate way. Coleridge, mm -hmm. in his note on the poem, says he, he dreamed the poem. He had the poem completely right in his dream. Um, he had taken a couple of grams of opium to help himself sleep. <laughs> And uh, then he was writing the poem out after he woke up, and he was interrupted by a person from Porlock who came on business. And Stevie Smith, in a very brilliant comic performance, uh, thinks that uh, the story maybe should not be taken completely uh, whole. Uh, we shouldn't necessarily believe Coleridge uh, entirely. And... Uh, if you if you called him a curse, why did he let him in? He could have hidden the house. <laughs> and basically, she ends by saying she longs, oh, person from Porlock, come quickly, bring my thoughts to an end. I'm hungry to be interrupted. Uh, and people said really quite wonderful things on the Poetry Foundation, Harriet blog. Uh, people said uh, really illuminating things. Uh, just this was the first day. I'm looking forward to reading more tomorrow and uh so far i'm finding like it's easy for me to respond to everything that people have said so far oh that's nice i went in and, and looked at the discussion a little bit earlier and uh, i loved the the range of the different kinds of comments that people were making because they were talking about everything from um just the, the humorous meaning and um and kind of the parody aspect of it to sounds and the rhythms of the lines, and it was really a discussion. Well, 
the word range is good for what is, I think, the best of the web. There's also a range of people who are welcome to participate and do participate at that blog. Uh, that is, it might be a junior high school student. It might be a famous mm -hmm. poet or a professor of poetry. And in that forum, uh, with the brief comments, my brief responses, everybody's welcome. You don't have to feel you're a scholar or you've written a term paper about this. And I know that um, when I've done things like this, my friends who are well-known uh, critics and poets enjoy taking part in a forum that's not academic, that's serious, good-spirited, and that can include people who are not necessarily experts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. It really is. And I, I kind of saw some things about the poem in a new light, too. It, and it just, um, I love the poem. I find <laughs> that every time I do this, I, lear I learn something. And often <laughs> it's in the course of talking, sometimes I learn from scholars, but sometimes you learn from somebody who's a fairly naive reader, new reader, and they, they find something really interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, um, thank you. I, I wanted to mention also that in singing school, the prompts are not really prompts as much as they are encouragements. To me, it feels more like, you know, encouraging the reader to try new things. And I wanted to speak a little bit about that and how you conceived of um, that method of approaching the poem. Well, again, I want to make every note more like I was talking to a friend and more like the way mm -hmm. I talk to my students. And uh, I, as a, when I was a kid, I didn't enjoy school. I did not do well in junior high school and high school. And uh, it goes against my grain to do things like uh, study questions or uh, explicit prompts and assignments. So um, I try to just say a cogent sentence or two um, I'm thumbing through the book at random about Swift's, Jonathan Swift's description of the morning. I say, try your own contemporary version of this in your own world, keeping it fresh yet recognizable. Good luck. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> and, and I remember, I don't have it in front of me, but I, I seem to remember that uh, for Louise Bogan's wonderful poem called Women, um, I say... Uh, something very much like, what assignment do you imagine her giving herself uh, to write this poem? I guess I think that if you're a poet, you have imagination, you should imagine a prompt. And I try in these uh, little headnotes, as uh, the term I use for them, uh, in the headnotes, I'm encouraging people to give themselves an assignment that in a way conceiving the assignment is part of uh, writing the poem. And uh, let me look up. I have an index here. Let me see what do I say about that uh, Louise Bogan poem. Wonderful poet Bogan. I think hers is one of the ones that I'll be talking about on the Poetry of the Harriet blog. Yes, a very simple. <coughs> I say, what assignment might she have given herself fulfilled by this poem? Then here's this poem with these complicated, ironic statements about women. Begins, women have no wilderness in them. They're provident instead. Content in the tight hut sell of their hearts to eat dusty bread. 
They do not see cattle cropping red winter grass. They do not hear snow water going down under culverts, shallow and clear. And since she is seeing these things and telling about them, she's uh, having a good time contradicting them and throwing the reader off balance. Uh, she's having a lot of fun making us a bit confused about what she's doing. They wait, and when they should turn to journeys, they stiffen. When they should bend, they use against themselves that benevolence to which no man is friend. And uh, it, she just clearly gave an assignment to not say any cliches about women in uh, one way or another. Thing she she means uh, wonderful last uh, stanza. They hear in every whisper that speaks to them a shout and a cry, as like as not, when they take life over their door sills, they should let it go by. And um, it's also a personal poem. It's also saying this is me. I'm not talking about women in general at all, at heart, though I may seem to. And. Um, I, and the facing page is this Sterling Brown poem, Harlem Happiness, where it's a black couple, like, but just like in the movies, the ethnic groups, including the Mick cop, as he says, is looking at them. And uh, in that poem, imagine, imagine if a teacher gave a class an assignment to use words as he does, like uh, mm -hmm. Dago, <laughs> and make you know in a poem. He gets away with it. When, once you've read the poem, you think, yes, this is quite beautiful. It's in Italy. Wow. Well, you know what I love about this is essentially what you're doing is rather than giving assignments, you're kind of guiding the poet or the reader to learn how to um, take model poems and and learn from them and come up with their own assignments. So it's mm -hmm. instead of just being a one-time thing, you're you're giving someone the tools to. Um, learn how to use poetry as inspiration and to, to build from it. Um, well, that's beautiful, that's, Melissa. I hope that's true. That is exactly oh, right. It absolutely is. And, um, you know, you made a, a point early in the book about difference between imitation and inspiration. Um, I think it's really one. about that a little bit? Well... Uh, as I say about Allen Ginsberg, I think one of the first things I say in the book is I once heard Allen Ginsberg reciting by heart, very well, um, John Milton's poem, Lycidas. And um, it was, Lycidas is very beautiful. Ginsberg, a student of Lionel Trillings at Columbia at some point, had loved the poem so well that he memorized it. Um, that's consistent with if you read Ginsberg's notebooks he gives himself all kinds of assignments and blank verse and he's working very hard at his art and as I say in the book Ginsberg did not write like John Milton but he learned from John Milton and he didn't write from the right like John Milton any, any more than Pablo Picasso made African masks but a thing that is very far from yourself can help you be creative in the very idea of trying to process of trying to incorporate it into what you want to do. And I think that is a characteristic of, of the artists I admire the most is they know how to use things that are quite unlike themselves and gain from it. Uh, there's a nice yogi I think it's one that Yogi might actually have really said. Um, 
uh, some <laughs> uh, kid was trying to uh, uh, adopt a, a batting stance like that of Roberto Clemente, and uh, uh, Yogi said, if you can't imitate him, don't copy him. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, well, along those lines, um, one of the things that you also encourage people to, to do is to get the poem by heart. And uh, can you talk a little bit? I mean, I'm sure some of it's obvious, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on um, the benefits of memorizing poetry. Isn't by heart a beautiful expression? Uh, I love it. <laughs> rather than saying memorize it, get it by heart. Uh, what I encourage the teachers to do at the Teachers Institute in the summer is rather than have everybody in the class have to memorize the same thing, just tell the students, I want you to get something by heart that you think is worth worthwhile getting by heart. Memorize something that you're willing to read to the rest of us as saying, I like this so well, I got it by heart. Uh, mm -hmm. So that you have the choice. For me, the most wonderful ones are the ones where I don't know I got it by heart, but I've read it so often, I've thought about it so much, I discover that I have it by heart. Um, mm -hmm. My shortest head note in the book is on Emily Dickinson's The Soul Selects Her Own Society, and it is just four words, and the, the head note there is, get it by heart. I think there is a kind of writing prompt. I think if you memorize a Dickinson poem like that, your writing gland and your writing organs are primed and ready to go. Uh, it's like uh, warming up at an instrument before you improvise. You play somebody else's chorus. Um, I, I believe it deeply as this book shows. And it was fun to publish the book with Norton, which publishes wonderful, thick, uh, many, many pages of very scholarly uh, anthologies. And uh, to publish this uh, rather idiosyncratic book that is rather light and easy to carry around, um, I was very happy. That it was also, it was, is technically speaking, a Norton anthology. <laughs> it's very unlike wow. the Norton anthology. <laughs> you know, I didn't really think about it that way, but uh, that's, that's really interesting. It is kind of a departure from their from traditional of doing anthologies, and that's great. <laughs> it's good with them um, for that reason. Uh, I, I really like the analogy that you just made about um, a musician warming up an instrument with someone else's song. I think that's such a beautiful way of saying that. Um, and you bring the, you know, you bring the poem into your body. It goes back to what you were talking about earlier, with you know what happens with the mouth, and just you know bringing the rhythms of it inside of you, you know. Yeah, um, art is inspired by art. Yeah, I recently performed. Uh, I'm reading my poems with two great jazz musicians, Lawrence Hobgood, the pianist, and Stan Strickland, the great reed player. Uh, Stan played reed and flute, and. Uh, as we were, we finished, and as they were packing up and we were getting ready to go out to get something to eat and drink, I heard Stan celebrating Lawrence. Uh, they hadn't worked together before much. They met working with me. And Stan, this jazz player, 
was naming all the classical musicians that he heard snatches of and bits of in Lawrence's playing. He said, oh, I heard that Ravel bit. I heard the Polonc bit. I heard when you did. And uh, it was just wonderful, all things that I had. I don't have the musicianship to have detected. And uh, they were talking with great pleasure about the ancestors. Wow, that's really cool. But you could do it with poetry, right? <laughs> of course. Probably. Of course. <laughs> yeah. When Ginsburg, when Ginsburg set himself, say, oh. when Alan Ginsburg set himself um, the uh, exercise of uh, writing in iambic pentameter and blank verse, he also included his own uh, happy gay man's way of, uh, he says, one of the perfect iambic pentameters, let me see if I can do it, is let let cockrow bless the buttocks of my peat. <laughs> let cockrow <laughs> bless the buttocks of my peat. Uh, so you do it, but you do it your own way. Yes, that's great. <laughs> you know, while we're talking about music, and um, I know that you have been playing with uh, jazz musicians and reciting your poetry, and I have a CD, and um, it's really wonderful. And I know that this informs your understanding of poetry. One of the sections in singing school, it, it was actually the section on listening. You talked about Dizzy Gillespie and yes. accenting. And I wanted to see if you could talk a little bit for our listeners about what he said and how that translates to it's a it's a great interview in the Paris Review with Dizzy Gillespie. Uh, I quoted a bit in uh, in that introduction to the listening section, and it was very important to me. I saved it for many years rereading that interview, and uh, he says basically that young jazz musicians who were imitating him and Charlie Parker would try to play these very complicated uh, altered scales and harmonies and playing a lot of notes at once. And he says sometimes people do that because they really uh, they can't understand that phrasing and rhythm is at the soul of the music. Mm-hmm. And it's more difficult and complicated. And the interviewer um, serves a good function by saying, but I thought that the rhythm of, of jazz was very simple and regular. And Dizzy has a great time saying, no, no, some people can't hear two rhythms at once. And that is what you have to do if you want to play jazz well. Uh, Here's the quotation about the harmony. Some guys really ran some of our ideas into the ground. They didn't use it with any taste. I think the basic part of jazz is rhythm, and you should delve into that. But you see... The trouble is a lot of guys can't keep time. I mean, they can't see two or three rhythms going at once. So all they can do is mess mess with the chords. And he says, mm-hmm. I'm not talking about simple rhythm. Rhythmic consent, content means how you accent, where your accents are, and how they fit in with different types of rhythm. You can't notate it for them. They have to be able to hear it. And similarly, in poetry, whether you're talking about Milton or William Carlos Williams or Elizabeth Bishop, it's not scansion. It's not a prosody you can define. It's a matter of phrasing. And things like on love, on grief, on every human thing, things you learn by studying a lot of masterful art. 
Um, I was cracking up when I read the book and you called Scanson child's play. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. it seems so difficult to so many people, but you really put it in perspective as being um, really something that's with the background. The, the, the foreground is, is what you're talking about right now, <laughs> you know. So um, I love that. Um, well, we don't have a lot of time left, and I wanted to see if you would read to us one of your favorite poems from the book. I know that you have a lot of favorite poems in the book, but um, I just love hearing you read them. And um, if there's one that you'd like to read and just discuss a little bit, that would be fantastic. Well, in a way, in a way, Melissa, they're all favorite poems, but... Um I, I think it might be fun to take a poem by a poet I think is best known for his uh, second best poems. I'll read a poem that I love by Robert Frost, and um, I'll uh, I'll choose one that is not uh, about the two paths in the woods and one not taken. Um, this is Robert Frost's poem, To Earthward. To earthward. Love at the lips was touch, as sweet as I could bear. And once that seemed too much, I lived on air that crossed me from sweet things. The flow of, was it musk from hidden grapevine springs downhill at dusk? I had the swirl and ache from sprays of honeysuckle that when they're gathered shake dew on the knuckle. I craved strong sweets, but those seemed strong when I was young. The petal of the rose it was that stung. Now no joy but lacks salt that is not dashed with pain and weariness and fault. I crave the stain of tears, the aftermark of almost too much love, the sweet of bitter bark and burning clove. When stiff and sore and scarred, I take away my hand from leaning on it hard in grass and sand. The hurt is not enough. I long for weight and strength to feel the earth as rough to all my length. Wow, um, what a gorgeous reading. Thank you. As I say as I say in, in the headnote, Frost is a sexier, more adventuresome poet than he may get credit for. And I do give some reading advice in that headnote too. I say read the sentences aloud as sentences and the rhymes will take care of themselves. So that with a beautiful stanza like, I had the swirl and ache from sprays of honeysuckle that when they're gathered shake dew on the knuckle. All you have to do is read the sentence. You don't have to. You don't have to do. I had the swirl and ache from sprays of honeysuckle that when they're gathered shake dew on the knuckle. Nah, I had the swirl and ache from sprays of honeysuckle that when they're gathered shake dew on the knuckle. And it isn't acting either. It isn't doing a hammy interpretation. It isn't, uh, mm -hmm. I had to swirl. An ache from sprays of honeysuckle when they're gathered, shake, do, and then... No, just, uh, I had to swirl and ache from sprays of honeysuckle when they're gathered, shake, do, on the knuckle. It's that plain and um, that fundamental. And if you mm -hmm. read the poem, you can hear all the variation he gets within what you could call his tune. It's a surprising side of Frost that I was unaware of before I read the book. Um, and 
I like the way you read it a lot. You, you're going through the enchantment, right? I don't have it in front of me, but I think that's what you're doing. Bringing a lot over through to the sentences. Yeah. yeah, I think this poem is a good lesson in reading aloud. And the, the other frost poem that I include, An Old Man's Winter Night, is a great lesson in blank verse and write as unrhymed uh, pentameters. Mm, thank you. Well, um, in closing, I just have a couple of last few questions for you. And um, sure. I think I already know the answer to this, or the many answers, but just, you know, for our listeners at the end here, what do you hope that others will get from singing school? The pleasure of reading a poem aloud in your writing, being guided by what you read. A lot of people send me poems they've written. Sometimes they're pretty good, and I feel if you want to get better at this, you need to read more. And I hope the book gives a hint of how to read more. The book is very much in the spirit of the videos that I'll recommend Anybody who's listening to us, please go to www.favoritepoem.org, favoritepoem.org, and look at the glassblower who reads the Frank O'Hara poem, um, the U.S. Marine with an Hispanic surname who reads Yeats's Politics. Um, they show you how simple and how endlessly complicated this project is of reading and writing poetry and the spirit of the book is that mm, that's great and do you want to repeat that website one more time uh, it's not poems and it's not poet it's poem favorite poem one word mm-hmm. favorite poem dot org that's where you can see the videos and under for teachers there's information about the institute that we do every summer uh, for K through 12 teachers Great. And uh, is there anything else that you'd like to share? Um, any other web announcements or any any other interviews coming up? You know that you'd like to sort of point people well, to now. There's lots of that stuff at my website, Robert Pinsky Poet, RobertPinskyPoet.com. But mainly, I want people to know about those videos at FavoritePoem.org. Great, and they are really, really wonderful. They'll They'll just change the way you feel about poetry. If you don't already love it, uh, you'll love it. And if you already love it, you'll love it more. <laughs> and they're also a great teaching tool. I, I think they're a great thing for teachers. Mm, yeah. Thank you for all the good questions, Melissa. You've done a great job. I appreciate it. Uh, well, thank you. And it, it was easy with this wonderful book. Um, I'm really, really excited about it. And... I just hope it finds its way into lots of classrooms and homes. <laughs> so far, it seems to be doing that. I think so. So far, it's, it's, I was very gratified well. by the reviews on Amazon. The customer reviews in Arizona, Amazon are very nice. Well, I saw that, and I saw that the, the one guy in there um, attempted to structure his review according to what you said a good review to be. My <laughs> article, my so article played on how to write a review. Yeah, he did a very good job of it. It was very funny and very good, very adaptive. clever. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And you know, this is, I guess, the third time I've interviewed interviewed you, and I hope it's not the last. 
So next Same time you have here. a book coming out, just let me know and we'll set up another one. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Melissa. Pleasure. Okay, thank you. You have a wonderful night. <laughs> Thanks. So long. <laughs> Bye-bye. And before we close, I'd like to let our listeners know that you can subscribe, donate, or purchase single issues of Teferit Journal at our website, www.teferitjournal.com. While you're there, be sure to check out the new Teferit Talk book. It's a collection of interviews from the first year of Teferit Talk Radio. And also have a look at the special invitation from Hay House Publishers to join authors Marianne Williamson, Nancy Levin, and Reed Tracy for a writer's workshop in San Francisco, October 5th through 6th. As well, Hay House would like to let you know about their Speak, Write, and Promote workshop with Cheryl Richardson and Reed Tracy in New York City, November 1st through November 3rd. I'd also like to thank my executive producer and Teferit publisher, Donna Bear Stein, producer and Teferit associate editor, R.J. Jeffries, Michelle Mangan, and our wonderful intern, Udo Hintz, for their work every month in helping the show to run smoothly. Our next interview will be September 30th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with Dr. Andrea Pollard. We hope you'll join us then, and in the meantime, we wish you peace, love, happiness, and fulfilling work. And well done. Goodbye.